There's this aspect of the Christian life called prayer. Maybe you've heard of it. It's kind of a big deal. But if you're anything like me, prayer has always been one of those things that you hear about, but aren't really sure how to do it properly. So if that describes you, then stick around because this episode is for you. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. As always, I want to thank my supporters over on Patreon who help make sure that the blog and podcast can keep doing their thing every month. I just want to give a quick shout out to Kimber and Matt, who are the two most recent supporters on Patreon. Uh, Just thank you for joining others in supporting this ministry. So let's talk about prayer. Depending on who you are or your upbringing or your interaction with Christian culture, prayer is going to be one of those things that is just completely natural to you where you are just in a a good, solid communication with God, or it is this totally alien thing that maybe you do, but you're not sure if you're doing it right or what you're supposed to do during it, or maybe you don't see the point of it. Maybe you don't understand the purpose and the joy of it. And so maybe you just don't pray or don't pray anytime beyond mealtimes. Uh, For a lot of us, I know it's easy to be more in prayer when we're in distress and kind of treat prayer as a 911 line where, you know, we got a direct line to God and and we call out and say, God, help me. I'm, I'm sick. I'm dying. Someone's hurt. You know, things like that. But even with that, sometimes we can really struggle to feel consistent in our prayers and we can maybe, you know, shoot off a quick prayer like a text message. But we, we have a hard time understanding those people who have this really rich, deep prayer life. Now, I will argue that, especially from my personal experience, it, it seems easier to pray to God when things are difficult, not because necessarily we treat God as a genie in a bottle where he just exists to get us out of our troubles, but those times of deep distress are really those times where I think we better see just how reliant and how dependent we are on our God. But for the day-to-day grind, especially for people who were saved later in life, we are maybe just more accustomed to bailing ourselves out of trouble or not bothering God with small stuff like that. So by the end of this episode, I'm not guaranteeing that you're going to have a richer, deeper prayer life. But instead, what I want us to do is to try to better understand how we ought to pray or or what we need to believe about God and prayer so that when we go to pray, however we do it, because I don't believe there's one way it has to be done, but however we do it, we do it in a way that is most glorifying to our God, which is really the point of almost anything we do, right? So for this, there's all kinds of ways we could do it. Uh, I mean, there's been books written about prayer and things like that. Uh, Tim Keller, I believe, has kind of the pivotal book on prayer. Uh, Very easy to remember. It's called Prayer, so you could check that out. But for the purpose of this episode, what I want us to do is really to look at what Christ had to say about prayer while he was on earth. Because we are told, we are shown through the narrative of the Gospels that Christ was regularly in prayer. We aren't often told what God in flesh said to our Heavenly Father, but we do know that whatever he said, he said it often. He was in frequent communication with the Father, 
And as his followers, we want to model that, right? We want to follow our master in all areas of life, right? We want to be like Christ in our patience, in our proclamation of the good news, in how we think about anger, how we think about a variety of sins, but we also want to follow Christ in how he thought about prayer. And so we are actually privileged to have something about prayer directly from Christ because he actually told his disciples and by extension, we get to kind of listen in on that conversation and learn the same thing they learned about what a model prayer is going to look like. Now, to be incredibly clear, I know that there are some people who use the Bible and they say, this is how you have to pray. It's, it's a repetition. It's like a rite. It's a ritual of prayer. But that's not what Christ says. Christ says to pray like this. And so that's what we're going to look at. Now, in my original article, I used the Lord's Prayer from Luke, which was shorter. And the reason I did that is simply because for sake of time and space, I try to keep my articles a little punchier. Um, I don't want to say shorter because they're never short, but I, I try not to drag things out so much that I'm going to lose people. So in the original article, I used the prayer in Luke because it didn't have as much content to it, but the benefit of a podcast is that I can go a little longer because you aren't cemented to a screen reading. You can listen to this as you're going on about your day. So what I want to do instead is to look at the model prayer that we see in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And so what we're going to do here is to basically look kind of line by line or thought by thought and try to break down the things that Christ is saying because the the model prayer that he gives us is pretty straightforward but there is some depth and richness and good theology to it for us to understand now I want to try to strike a very careful balance here because if we just take everything at surface level then that's where it kind of becomes this easy ritual to just recite but uh, in my own study, I've seen people go very in-depth with it to the point that they almost overshoot, I think, what Christ would have been trying to say to his disciples. Because we need to remember that his disciples weren't sitting there cross-referencing, you know, the words that Christ said here was something that he said 10 pages ago. You know, they were living this. And so we want to understand how his disciples would have taken this and what Christ would have meant to convey as he was saying this rather than over reading into the text and trying to make Christ say something he wasn't necessarily intending based on the context of who he was talking to when he was saying it and things like that. So to uh, start this off, I'd, I'd like to actually uh, go back um, to Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 uh, because this is going to give us some warnings for us to keep in mind as we are considering prayer and thinking about prayer. So the first one uh, in verse five, it says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So an important thing here is that we don't want our prayers to be this grandstanding thing, this thing where we show off, where we let others know, hey, check out just how holy I am. Look at all the extravagant words I'm using. Look at how 
humble I am. Look how honest I am. Listen to the emotion in my voice. Now, that's not to say that there's anything wrong in prayer. And I mean, we see uh, demonstrations of public prayer throughout the New Testament. But what Christ is saying here is, is when you are thinking of your own prayer life, don't just pray really when others can hear you. You know, have a private prayer life. Have a one-to-one quiet time with your Lord wherever you need that. Uh, You know, he says to go into your closet and pray, and that's not necessarily a command that prayer must be done in a closet because that's how God's going to hear you best. But instead, there is a he's he's striking at a contrast between those who stand out in the the synagogues or at street corners where everyone's passing by, where there's a constant hustle and bustle, and everyone's hearing someone's voice praying over all that. Taking that and contrasting it to literally being enclosed in a small room where people arguably will be completely unable to hear you. So first thing to keep in mind with prayer is that we want it to be genuine conversation with our God and not something we do to please others or impress others, or even really not something where we say, oh, I can't pray because I just don't know the right things to say. Uh, You know, there's, there's times when, you know, in church culture, we often have small group prayers and people say, well, I'm just not very good at praying or I'm not good at public speaking. And here I think Christ is even offering a comfort in that you don't have to have fancy words. You don't have to have this big, elegant and eloquent prayer. And you don't need to be intimidated by those who maybe do have a a more, for lack of a better word, impressive sounding prayer. You know, there's some people who I've heard pray and I mean, I'm, I'm stirred to love God more just because of the earnestness and in, in their prayers and the words they say. But that shouldn't make someone else feel like, oh, well, I can't pray because I don't sound like them because who cares? They're as much of a sinner as you are. So when you pray, don't worry about how you sound to others. Worry about how you are thinking about your God in that moment. Um, likewise, and kind of attached to that, uh, verse seven, he then says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask them. And this is a huge thing, is we don't want to just necessarily badger God and keep saying the same thing over and over, or again, have these big, impressive things that we say, or even necessarily have a a script that we constantly follow to make sure we tick certain boxes or things like that. You know, there's, there's not some magic spell where God's not sitting around making sure that we say the exact right thing or the right amount of things or whatever. And in fact... Uh, As it says at the end there, your father knows what you need before you ask him, meaning that really God's not like, oh, he needs that boy. I'm glad he told me because I wouldn't have known otherwise. You know, God knows because, well, let's face it, God is God, right? We're not surprising him with our prayers. And in a way, our prayer isn't just for us to tell God what we need, but almost in a way it can serve as a reminder for us to know where our needs are met what our greatest needs are in the Father. So those are just two important things to keep in mind. It's not about big impressive speech. It's not about repetition. It's not even about making sure we cover absolutely every minute detail, like we're signing a contract with God and he will only answer the things that we specifically ask for in the exact right way. So kind of understanding that about prayer. Christ then goes on in verse nine to say, pray then like this. Now, again, 
huge important thing, pray like this, pray after this, let this serve as a model. This is not a thing that we have to say as a group or congregation. You can, it's fine. It is not evil or wrong to say the prayer exactly like this. However, when we think that we have to pray like this or Christ is commanding us to pray like this, we're completely missing the language that he used when he said, hey, here's a model, here's an example or a blueprint to follow to make sure you are keeping some things in mind. So with that being said, let's now kind of really dig in to some of the things that Christ is telling us to pray for, uh, paying attention to the order, some of the words used and things like that. First is he's, so I'll, I'll read the full prayer and then we'll kind of uh, dissect it a little bit more. So he says, pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So as we are dissecting this, what I want us to focus on is not, again, the specific words we pray. Instead, I want you to focus on what you believe or focus on your heart as you're praying this, because we can say all the right words. We can sound good to others. We can feel like we are are ticking the right boxes. But if we're not believing the, the, the context of this, if we're not having a good substance to our prayers, then it doesn't matter that we're praying to someone named God. It doesn't matter that we are following biblical models. If we aren't truly believing that this God exists, that he is our heavenly father, that he loves us, if we don't know who we are praying to and not believing certain things about him, then we may as well be praying to any other God out there because we aren't truly believing in a real being. We're just kind of praying a prayer like anyone else can. So the first thing that he says is our father in heaven. So the first thing to focus on is our father. Now, he's not just a father. He's not just the father. He's our. There is a a possession that we have in the fact that if we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then the first person of the Trinity, the heavenly father, is our father. And that is a very important and key term there because there's a understanding that of what a father is and a intention in God calling himself father and, and, and portraying himself in that way, you know, because we don't call God this big fearful term. We don't call him, sir. We call him father. It's an intimate term and fathers and our heavenly father, especially is kind of a perfect example of what a father ought to be. He is near, he is approachable and he loves his children. He cares for them. He wants the best for them. Now, as we've talked in the past, we want to be very careful not to go down the prosperity gospel route or the word of faith route of it's always God's plan for you to have what you want, because that's actually a terrible father. That's an evil father. A, a bad father is one who gives his kids whatever they want. Candy for dinner, uh, you know, doesn't make them be accountable for their actions, does not correct their sin. You know, that's an, that's an evil father. That's a bad father. A good father is one who gives his children what they need, who denies his children things that would be bad for them, who corrects them in their disobedience, and who loves them despite it all. And that is our God. 
Um, another important thing about our God is that he wants to hear from us. So consider what we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 7. It says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So God wants us to approach him in prayer. He wants us to approach him as a father. Now, not as a goo-goo-ga-ga, hey, best buddy kind of thing. You know, he's, you know, because fathers back in, in, in the biblical context were people who were respected. They were honored. They were looked up to. And so we want to treat our God as father in the way that people would have understood what a father was when he related to them in that way. But that doesn't mean that he is unapproachable. That doesn't mean that he is cold and distant. He loves his children. And so he wants us to approach him with our struggles and our needs, but he also wants us to approach him with our joys and our excitements and our curiosities. He wants us to rely on him for truth as a child relies on their father for truth and understanding, for when they fall down and skin their knee, when they drew an awesome picture, when they you know, want to put on a show or, or a, a concert or something like that with their little you know, $5 xylophone or whatever. You know, and if ever we want to know, well, you know, how much does God love us? How involved is he in his creation? How much does he really care? Let's go John 3:16 with it, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. God cared so much about this broken, rebellious, evil humanity who spits in his face every single day that he sent Christ, the second person of the Godhead, to enter into sinful humanity, to be mocked and scorned and to be hung on the cross, brutalized and killed by his own creation that he came to save. The immensity of our father's love for us cannot be ignored. And when we're praying to him, we need to remember that is who we are praying to. He is our father who's in heaven, who's not distant, who's not only existing kind of outside of reality, but he is, has, has engaged himself in reality. He has allowed himself to be in his own creation in heaven right now. Now, heaven, of course, for us feels distant, but for God, that is, there's a deep intimacy in the fact that our God, our heavenly father, who is spirit is actively engaged and present in his own creation. So the thing to take away from that is that we can approach God as a child can approach their father with love and respect and honor, but we can do so directly and with a full trust that he loves and cares for us. Now, the next one is hallowed be your name. Now, that word hallowed can be kind of weird for us, right? It's it's very obviously kind of an antiquated term. Very few of us walk around talking about, oh, hey, don't touch that chair. It's hallowed or something like that. But again, this sets as kind of a contrast to God being a father. Yes, he is a father, but we want to be very careful not to assign more of our human understanding to fathers than what God intends for us. And so almost as a contrast to how we might think of fathers, Christ points out something about the name of God that reminds us that God's not just some kind of dude bro that wants to hang out with us, but instead he is 
hallowed or he is holy. He is set apart. He is completely unique from anything else out there. And with that reminder, with what Christ is saying, he's reminding us that we need to reverence God. We need to exalt him. We need to hold up the name of our heavenly father, remembering that there is a uniqueness about it that does not make God like one of us. God's not just a better version of a human. He is God. He is so far removed from who and what we are and deserves to be thought of and treated in that way. So uh, remember Exodus 15, 11, who is like you among the gods, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. You know, we, we want to make sure that we are approaching our God in that way, knowing that he loves us intimately, but that he is deserving of respect, that there is no one like our God. His name is holy. And what's amazing about that is that God gives us his name. You know, if you read the the Old Testament, God gives us his personal name of Yahweh. Now, often in a lot of translations, it's translated as Lord because translators felt a little uncomfortable, perhaps, at writing God's intimate name. And so they wanted to really treat it as holy, treat it with respect. And so not write the intimate and personal Yahweh, but instead kind of a, a more cold, more respective Lord. Now, the problem with that is that it is God who gives us his personal name. It is God who reveals that to us. And names were a big deal in Old Testament context because names were kind of the root of who you were. They they said what your name was they, or they said what your character and nature was. And so, you know, that's why, like, for example, we see God renaming people because that is the value and importance that names had in that culture. And so... When we remember that God's name is holy, it's not just the, the word Yahweh or God or, or whatever is necessarily this kind of sacred word that we should never utter, but instead there is a reverence and a majesty to the fact that God is who he is and he allows us to call him Yahweh. We can know him personally while always respecting him. And even Christ did this, right? Christ, who was equally God, he isn't necessarily below the Father. You know, there's not a tiered system where God the Father is on top, and then there's God the Son, and then, you know, God the Holy Spirit kind of hanging out down there at the bottom rung. They have different functions with equal majesty, equal value, equal importance. But we even see here that Jesus Christ, right, the, the Son of the Trinity, even he deferred to the father. He submitted himself to the father perfectly. And if Jesus Christ did that to the heavenly father, how much more should we respect the holiness and uniqueness and majesty and authority of our heavenly father? So the thing to, to take away from this is that when we pray, we speak to a holy and amazing God. Nothing in the universe is like him and he is worthy of our worship and honor. He calls for us to know him personally, but we want to keep a balance of re always remembering who God is compared to us. Now, next is verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first line there, or the first phrase, your kingdom come. You know, Christ came to usher in the kingdom. He came to essentially reclaim the world, to 
to set apart the kingdom of darkness that had been basically established since the rebellion in Eden and instead to usher in a, a holy and perfect kingdom. And we will see this kingdom kind of reach its culmination in the future when Christ comes back and reigns bodily for a thousand years. And then uh, at the end of Revelation, we see that Christ will kind of remake the heavens and earth, do away with the old, rebuild it, and allow earth to be in the perfect state it was always meant to be now without the tree of knowledge of good and evil because God's purposes have already been fulfilled and therefore we know there will be no real option or desire to sin because we've already seen the results of it. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and he's he's been perfection for us. But what Christ is saying though is that we need to be kingdom minded. And again, this this phrase has been so hijacked that we have to be very careful with how we think about it because Christ isn't calling us to to set up his kingdom so that he can come in. Uh, there's a what I'm going to argue is a very unbiblical and ungodly belief out there called the seven seven mountains or seven pillars um, theology. It's very heavily promoted by places like Bethel Church. Uh, but they have this idea that you know we need to to reclaim seven areas of the world for Christ. So so like music and entertainment, politics, the church, family. There's this weird belief that because, you know, he says, oh, you know, we need to bring in the kingdom. That's not what Christ is talking about here. He is just talking about how he came to conquer. He calls for us to, in a way, conquer, to, to dominate the earth with the gospel, to spread the gospel, not so that we can build the kingdom so that Christ can come back, but that we are to remember that we are citizens of heaven, that something more is coming, that life today is not all that it is, that we are called to advance God's cause in a way, not to just kind of live our lives for ourselves and try to just make lots of money and be really happy and just do what pleases us, but also go to church and maybe read our Bible and maybe pray. No, we want to be so heavenly minded that what we do on earth is a clear reflection of who we represent, who we belong to. And even with that, we want to always be looking forward to the return of Christ when he will come and set up his kingdom, knowing that the world today is not how it's meant to be and it's not how it's going to be. But we are praying Christ come soon, come set up your kingdom, come conquer evil, come, come rule as you are worthy to do. You know, if you, if you read early in revelation, you know, worthy is the lamb. So that's an important thing to, to keep in mind as we are praying is we want to be praying for Christ's return and to be praying in a way that we are living a life that is reflective of someone who is a citizen of heaven, who is a foreigner, who is a visitor, who is a, a diplomat here on earth for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, your will be done, again, that is that idea of we are in the interest of God's will being done. Not our will, not our desires, not our preferences. We trust God and desire not only that what God wants done will be done, because we know that it will be, but that we can be instruments and tools in his hands to see that come true. We aren't just called to sit on the sidelines. We aren't just passively hanging out. 
we are involved in God's plan. He doesn't need us, right? It's not that God's sitting there saying, boy, if they don't do this, I don't know how I'm going to get it done. But uh, an example I like to use is it's like dad asking his kid, hey, why don't you come help me change the oil in the car? Like dad doesn't need the kid. And in fact, things will probably be done slower and less perfectly than if dad was just to do it himself. But he calls on the child to share in the work with him. And similarly, our heavenly father calls on us to share in the work, to advance his cause and his kingdom on earth. And with that, we also know that everything that God is doing is for a purpose. There is a plan to it. Um, I'm going to to ruin some people's coffee cups and inspiring wall art, but Romans 8.28 is actually a perfect statement on how we can think about God's work in the world. It says, we know that all that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's not about tragedy in our lives working out better for us. That's about tragedy in our lives working out for God. That is about good things in our life working out for God's plan. It's not a mantra that we just keep repeating to ourselves to say, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be better. It's going to work out well in the end for me because we don't have a guarantee or promise of that. You know, you didn't have Paul sitting there in prison waiting to be executed, just repeating all things work together for good. All things work together for good. God's going to deliver me from this. It's going to be okay. No, all the apostles died horribly. People in the early church died horribly. People in the church today, maybe not necessarily in uh, America or even in Western countries, but in the East, Christians today are dying badly. And they have the same Bible we do. They can read Romans 8.28 for themselves. But they understand what's really at work here. It's not that God makes all things work together for us, for our good, but for his good, for his plans. And sometimes the best thing for us is tragedy and misery and suffering. We may not always understand why on this side of earth or on this side of heaven, but we know that God is making all things work together for good. We are his tools. We are his instruments on earth. This earth isn't our permanent residence. This is not where our hope is is lined up. And so when tragedy strikes, you know, it, it's hard to see it in the time. It's hard when we lose a loved one, when we are suffering, when we lose a job, whatever. But we know that because this earth is not our permanent residence, it's not our hope, that things are working together for good. We may never bounce back health-wise. That person that we love may not be resurrected. But there is a good plan to our God that is advancing his will. His will is being done. And we want to trust him and rely on him for that. And so when we're praying in that way, we want to pray that God's will will be done, that, you know, we can, we can go to our, our holy heavenly father with our desires, with our wants, with our preferences. But we have to trust that God is going to do what he knows must be done. Because remember, it says God already knows what we need. He knows what has to be done before we even pray to him. And so prayers are opportunity to, yes, go to our father to tell him, hey, here is is what I would like. Here's what I hope, you know, uh, heal this person, save this person, help me land this job, help me to do well in, in school or at work or whatever. And those aren't wrong things to pray for. But how we think about those 
requests and petitions matter. Because if we say, God, I can only be happy if you answer it in the way that I desire, then what we're saying is, God, I am the judge of you. My will must be done. You exist to fulfill my will. And no, when we pray, when we live, we want God's will to be done through his people. So with that, the takeaway is that our prayers, like our lives, must be centered on the will of God. Although we can make our request known to him, we must ultimately remember that God's glory is our greatest desire, even more than our own happiness. Now, this talks about on earth as it is in heaven. This one is kind of a fun one to study and think about, and it's one that I'm going to kind of put an asterisk by and say I am not... I am still learning on this one. I am still refining my understanding of precisely what Christ means by this. So with this little section, I'm just going to tell you my understanding of it as it stands presently. It could change. It could modify. It could be deepened. But I want to briefly explain what I believe Christ means by this. So there is a reality, an understanding that a lot of people may not be familiar with. Um, it's it's growing in understanding today. It's not a new teaching by any stretch of the imagination, but it's one that is coming more into uh, public consciousness or Christian consciousness, if you will. And that is this kind of reality that God has spiritual beings in heaven that he acts out his will through them. We, we often think that, you know, God calls us to serve him on earth, but in heaven, in the spiritual realm, God's just kind of making declarations making plans, and they just happen because God says it. But if you track through the Old and New Testament, there is this kind of reality that God has spiritual beings like angels, like seraphim and cherubim, these spiritual beings that he works through in the same way that he works through his people on earth. So to, to try to very briefly explain this, uh, and, and this is why I was actually hesitant to get into the Matthew passage, just because this one is, I, I don't want this to detract or to be something that someone gets so distracted with. But again, this is my understanding right now. So to give an example of what I mean about God using uh, spiritual beings or heavenly he- heavenly creatures, you know, you can call them angels if you want, but angel is more of a job title rather than like a, a like we would say a dog or a cat or an angel, you know, angel is more of a job description. Like we would say a postmaster or a police officer. So to show what I mean though, uh, back in first Kings chapter 22, we have, uh, in verses 13 to 28, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but we have a prophet of the Lord named Micaiah and he is is going and he is kind of prophesying against King Ahab and Ahab just doesn't like this guy because Ahab has all these prophets, but there's this one guy named Micaiah who just never says anything good and never tells Ahab what he wants to hear. And so in this instance, uh, Ahab calls Micaiah and he says, Hey, prophesy something for me. And Micaiah kind of makes fun of him. And he, he repeats the things that uh, Ahab's other prophets are saying, but he does it. I I'm picturing kind of a sarcastic way of, Oh, great King Ahab, you're going to have great victory and nothing bad will ever happen to you. And Ahab's just like, and so Ahab says, um, to basically tell him the truth. And so Micaiah kind of tells him, Hey, bad things are a coming. 
And then the king, it says here in uh, 1 Kings 22, verse 18, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, and here's where this is important, or here's where our, our focus is. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. So here we are seeing uh, what Micaiah saw. He saw the, the host of heaven, the spiritual beings, angels and other spiritual beings with different job functions standing around the Lord. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and one said another. So commentary here is that God is saying, hey, I have a plan. I want Ahab to fall. My will is for Ahab to be defeated. Who is going to make sure this happens? How are we going to do this? So God, who can do all things, he could just smite Ahab if he wanted, but he is advancing his will through these this heavenly host. And one said one thing and one said another, I think means that people were giving ideas, but God was, was you know, being God, being all-knowing, was saying, no, that's not going to work, that won't work. Uh, but then we see... Verse 21, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and being a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. So here one, one spirit being comes and says, Hey, if you want to have to fall, I will go and entice him. And Yahweh says, how will you do it? And he says, I'll be a lying spirit in his prophet's mouth. So they will say things that they are convinced is true but I will be somehow influencing them. And I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of what that may or may not mean or how that may look, but it is this angel or this spirit being that is influencing these prophets. And he, Yahweh said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, and then this is Micaiah. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has declared disaster for you. So what I'm getting at here is that this is a picture that we see of God's will being done in heaven. God is using his agents, if you will, his, his loyal creatures, his heavenly host to advance his will on earth. And so what I believe Christ is talking about here is when he says your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it is a call to something that people of, of the Jewish tradition would have understood then that God uses spirit beings, call them angels if you want. God uses lesser imperfect creatures to accomplish his will in heaven. And Christ is saying, likewise, God's let God's will be accomplished on earth through his earthly agents, which would be his people, Christians. Now, if that's true, then what that is saying to us then is that as we are praying, we don't want to necessarily just pray, God, save this person, God, make things better. But instead, God, use me, right? Here am I, Lord, send me. This reality that we don't want to just sit around and just kind of watch God go to bat for us. But we want to act in, in full surrender to him, in full reliance on his power, but knowing that even though God could do whatever he wanted with zero effort on his part, instead, he chooses to work in heaven and on earth through his 
people, or in heaven, his heavenly host. So, as we're praying for God's will to be done, we want to be voluntary participants in his will. We want to be willing to go out and do the thing in the name of the Lord, not say, God, if it's going to happen, I've got to be the one to do it. And I need to be smart and I need to be clever in order to see this person saved. No, we are fully reliant on God's work through us, right? Especially the the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, You know, we can even personalize it and say, you know, God, I know it's your will that I stop doing this sin, you know, getting angry at my kids, looking at pornography, being, uh, you know, lazy at work, being unthankful, gossiping, whatever it is. But we don't just sit around and say, God, you know, I'm, I'm still sitting here waiting for you to abracadabra it. No, we want God's will to be accomplished through his people's work in the name of the Lord. So the takeaway, as you pray, pray that God's will will be done through his people. And if you are praying for God to do something, don't just pray for him to do it. But if it's his desire, if it's his will, that he would use you as a tool to see that prayer accomplished. Now, next is give us this day our daily bread. Now, there's two ways we can take this. There is, I think, one that is obvious and one that I've seen some commentators as I was studying this say this, and I'm a little iffy on it, but let's go with the obvious one. Give us this day our daily bread. God provides for his people. It is not, as I said, us just trying to do the work and trying to do our best and us having to rely on ourselves. We know, we understand, and we need to be praying in in the sense that God provides everything for us. Every good gift comes from above. Our job, our health, our salvation, our kids' salvation, our friends' salvation, uh, the the physical recovery, the spiritual struggles that someone's going through and overcoming those, all of those are going to come from God. And we know this because we're in Matthew chapter six. Now, if you go later in the exact same chapter and read what Christ says in verse 25 says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is life is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Look how Christ is kind of invoking that language from his model prayer. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? So again, Christ is saying, if if God is providing for the birds, you're, you're more important to him than a bird. You're more precious to him than a bird. And not only that, but, you know, what is the point of you sitting around worrying about where all this stuff is going to come from? Are you going to add time to your life by worrying? Are you going to add food to your fridge? Are you going to add money to your bank account by sitting around and fretting? No, it's ridiculous. And why are you anxious about clothing? He continues, consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Do you do not be therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Now, again, in this in this case, Christ was just talking to Jews. This is when before uh, the fullness of the Gentiles was going to be coming, and the gospel would would break out from 
the, the, the temple and, and be made available to the whole world. So Christ is saying that's stuff for the Gentiles, those who do not follow God, those who are not currently God's people. They stress about that stuff. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So that is that is a lot for such a little verse, right? For such a little phrase. But I believe that this is what Christ is really getting at. That we aren't saying, God, you know, I need to go and grind and get the money. But instead, God, I am reliant on you for provision and for supply. I need you And I trust that if I'm going to have a job, if I'm going to have food, if I'm going to have success, it's going to come through you. Again, bearing in mind that God doesn't just say, hey, sit around, let me handle this, but instead he works through us. So really, when we're praying for food, when we're praying for money or whatever it is, you know, for our provisions, it's it's a desire to, you know, as Christ says, to seek first the kingdom of God, to honor God with what we're doing, to serve him and love him and worship him, even in how we work, even in how we think of food. And through that, God's not going to just drop manna from heaven necessarily, but he will care for us and work through us to make sure that we have what we need. And we can, with that, trust that if things seem tight, if things seem iffy, if it seems like God is failing us, that it's not an accident, but that God is using that for his greater purpose and his greater glory. So that is the kind of obvious one, that when we are praying, that we are asking God for provision and and knowing that we rely on him, that all good things are from him. The food we have, the money we have, the house that we have, God gives and God can take them away, but it's always because he is good that he does those things. Whether or not we understand it, he works through us for his provision for his people to be accomplished. Worth noting here, before we move on to the little iffier part, but worth noting here is when this comes up in the prayer. So it starts off by our Father in Heaven, you know, reminding us of who we're praying to reminding us of how holy and set above he is, you know, a a coming to God with a sense of worship and awe of how holy and majestic he is praying for God's will to be done for us to be heavenly minded, for us to be serving and worshiping him primarily and above all. And once that worship and that understanding and that orienting of our minds are done, then in, in this model prayer, then our own needs start coming up. So it is, and again, I don't want to, I want to be very careful not to hang too much on this because it's, it's possible to overthink this, but I do think there is intentionality on Christ's part to say, first, you focus on God before you focus on yourself. You look upwards before you look outwards. You think vertically before you think horizontally. So as we are praying, then we want to make sure that we basically have our, our priorities straight, right? Not God, I need this. I'm worried about this. I'm fearful of this. Oh, also you're good. And I love you and stuff like that. Instead, our primary focus is God. You are God. I am your child. I serve you. I worship you. I love you. Let your will be done to me and through me. And then we bring our petitions and desires and questions to him. Now, the iffier part on this, 
is that bread had another meaning to Jesus Christ. So in John 6, 35, he said, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the iffy thing on this is we want to be very careful not to say, oh, well, we see Christ say bread here, and we see him say bread there. Therefore, they must be talking about the same thing. And I mean, maybe, possibly, but what could be meant here, if Christ is being clever, if he is having layers of meaning even, is not just give us our physical needs, but also give us our spiritual needs. Because when Christ talks about being the bread of life, it's always in contrast to physical needs. You know, people come to him and they say, hey, I want some bread. I, I want my physical needs met, even though tomorrow I'm going to be hungry again. And Christ meets that need, but then he also points out that he is the bread of life. He is the full sustenance. He is the unending satisfaction that meets our needs forever, not just for today. So, again, I want to be careful not to hang too much on this, but I think there is some credit that can be given that if his disciples were familiar with how he talked about bread and in Christ's prayer said, give us our daily bread, there could be a double meaning there of give us our, meet our physical needs, but also focus us on the bread of life. Give us Christ day by day. Let us be fully satisfied in him, even as we are seeking to have other needs met. And then verse 12, he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this is a big thing. You know, we've got the parable of the wicked servant who had much of his debt forgiven, but then he had someone else who owed him a ridiculously small amount by comparison. And then he got the guy thrown in debtor's prison. Uh, we have... Um, my uh, very old episode on uh, therefore in the golden rule, you know, the golden rule of treat others as you want to be treated. And what that's really talking about is Christ says, therefore, treat others as you want to be treated. Going back to the idea of because God treats you so well, because God doesn't treat you how you deserve, therefore, treat others how you want God to treat you with forgiveness, with peace, with with overwhelming generosity. And Christ even further clarifies this just a few verses later. So in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 6, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, there is a huge emphasis on the fact that not, you know, again, we got to be careful with the assumptions we make here. It's not that we earn forgiveness by forgiving others, but instead there is this, this logic to it that how can we be forgiven of so much and not forgive others of so little? So Christ here is kind of talking to forgive us just as we want to forgive others. And we forgive others because God forgives us. So here, Christ, in a broad sense, is talking about our relationships to others. So we've gone from our relationship and worship and reverence to God to our personal, um, individual needs. And then he kind of expands it out to how we relate to others. And an important thing is to treat others in a way that reflects someone who has been forgiven of their crimes against a good, perfect, and holy God. So are we going to be angry at someone for cutting us off in traffic? How small is that compared to what we, how we sin against God? And 
And the ridiculousness of it is getting angry at people for sinning against us is something that God also forgives us of. And so the the reality, the even insanity of us treating others with hostility, being offended that others would dare to disrespect us, dare not to treat us how we want to be treated, is is ridiculous in, when we consider how much has God forgiven us? How much does God love us? How patient is he even while we're in the midst of sin? How much does he still care for our needs even when we act in rebellion against him? So a lot of the New Testament just kind of continues to drive home to this main point that Christ is making is that God forgives us and we forgive others. We base our relationships on with Christians and non-Christians on how God has treated us because of what God did. Therefore, here's how we treat others. And when we are living that way, when we are truly believing that as we are praying to our God, it is going to be so much harder to hold a grudge against people, to get angry at people who we don't know, you know, people at the grocery store or in traffic, uh, you know, it's going to be harder to hold things against our spouse or our kids or our friends or family. And through that, we're going to be able to represent Christ to everyone even better. And we're going to be able to, at the very least, not dishonor the name of Jesus Christ because we're going to be living as people who are temporary residents on earth, whose primary goal and desire is to fulfill the will of God as his child. And the will of God is not for us to get even, to get revenge, to be angry, to be selfish. It's to reach others with the gospel and to represent Christ to the world. And so the takeaway for that one is to, number one, remember that we are broken and helpless sinners, uh, that each day we must hate our sin and continually kill it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And although our wickedness can never outdo the power of the cross, we still confess our sin because the things we love and hate are tied to the one we worship. Because it's not just a matter of forgive us our sins as a simple statement, but that's about confession, right? That's about bringing our sins to God, acknowledging our sin, asking him to forgive us. But then on top of that, when it comes to forgiving others, just as our hearts need to be right with God, our hearts also need to be right with other people. We will be sinned against by our spouse, our kids, our friends, our coworkers, that jerk in traffic, And although people can hurt us deeply, no one comes close to how much we sin against God and hurt him. And as we live in regular repentance from sin against God, we must rely on his grace to show us how to live a life of forgiveness towards others. Now he goes on, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some translations would say, deliver us from the evil one. So first is lead us into temptation. Oh boy, can we misunderstand this? So when we when we think about God leading us in a temptation, the very obvious thing that we immediately dismiss because we know that's not right, but our first thought is is the idea of God taking our hand and, and dragging us through temptation and saying, you know, and God putting temptations in our life to sin against him and for us to overcome it and for us to weather through the temptation that God is presenting to to just throw that out. Let's remember what James 1, 13 to 14 says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
So when we're talking about saying, God, please don't lead us into temptation, again, that's a translation decision that was made. A better way to to say it or think about it would be, God, do not allow us to be led into temptation. Protect us from the temptation to sin against you. And that is, as James points out, a heart matter, right? We are not tempted because someone comes along and makes us want to be tempted. Our temptations come because we have desires in our heart that we dwell on and focus on and then want to act on sinfully. Uh, Another thing this could mean is the word temptation there may be, again, a a poor translation decision. Uh, Instead of temptation, perhaps a better way to think of it is do not lead us into trials. Don't lead us into difficulties, if you will. So rather than thinking of it as, you know, the temptation of, you know, adultery, the temptation of drinking alcohol and getting drunk or or stealing or whatever, think of it more as uh, don't lead us into persecution. Don't lead us into earthly trials where we ourselves are attacked in a sense. Uh, So either one of those are a valid option for understanding what it means for God not to lead us into temptation. Either it's God, don't allow me to be led, allow, do not allow uh, my sinful fleshly desires to be at war with my desire to serve you, or God, protect us from trials, tribulations, persecutions from your enemies, but deliver us from evil. And I'm going to be honest right now, I just had a very long gap in my recording. Um, I just had to go uh, clear out my lungs a little bit. I don't know if you can tell, but I've been uh, just having some congestion issues for about two weeks now. Um, And if you are kind of a more active listener, you may notice, hey, it's been a while since Ray's recorded. Well, I've been having a hard time talking. But anyway, so I don't remember exactly the last thing I said before I had to go uh, deal with my lungs. But um I think that the better way to understand this last phrase of deliver us from evil is to deliver us from the evil one. And here's why I say that. So in Matthew, so later on uh, in Matthew chapter 13, we have the parable of the sower. And in that, I'm going to super duper condense this, but he talks about how uh, someone scattered seeds and the seeds fell on different types of ground. And based on where they fell, uh, the, the seeds either grew and flourished or grew and withered or didn't grow at all. Now, the first one that he he talks about in Matthew 13, verse 4, it says, And he sowed some seeds, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. All right, weird, but sure, yeah, birds will eat seeds that are just sitting there out in the open and not buried. That makes sense. So what's he talking about here? Well, Christ explains it because everyone else was just as confused as we are. So uh, jumping up ahead then in verse 18 is where he starts to clarify what all the different seeds represent. He says, uh, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Now, First thought might be, that is super weird. We can lose our salvation. Satan can steal the truth of God from us. Oh, no. Now, settle down. Because keep in mind the context of when Jesus Christ said this. So at this point, he was still on earth. He had not ascended to heaven. and The Holy Spirit had not come to dwell in the children of God to seal them for the day of salvation. So 
at this time, even though God knew who was and wasn't going to be saved, there was still a difference in in the kind of safety that people had. A lot of this that we read, we try to read with our, our post-Pentecost mindset. So an argument here could be made that if this is meant to be, if if what Jesus Christ said or meant was to protect us from the evil one, what he may be saying is that as people in that day were listening, right, as Christ was going around proclaiming the good news, but he had not yet paid the penalty for sin, that even people who believed in the name of Jesus Christ were still in a way playing the waiting game, right? Their sin had not been paid for. They could not have true and total forgiveness of sins. Uh, If you read um, Hebrews, I think it's chapter 10. I'm going off script right now. But uh, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how, you know, the blood of goats and bulls could never fully pay the price of sin. They were kind of putting a pause. They were an act of faith more than an actual act of sin forgiveness. And so, but that is the world that these people were living in is that there were still sacrifices and stuff being made, but sin was not being fully forgiven. So it's possible that as Christ is calling his followers to pray that the evil one not come and snatch the truth from them, um, argument could be made that he's saying that for those who hear the truth to not just let it fall and nothing happen. But instead to protect them, to let the the truth of Christ dwell and grow in their heart so that whether they died in their belief in righteousness, as we see in Hebrews 11, or if they lived long enough for Christ to ascend into heaven and the Holy Spirit to come, that they would essentially keep the faith, keep their belief, keep their reliance on the truth of God for the forgiveness of sin. So that's the argument for translating it evil one. But if, and so... I guess before we move on, how do we think of that today then? Because as as followers and as believers, if we are saved, we are saved indeed, right? If if the truth of the gospel lands and grows, then how do we pray this? I'm not sure we pray it in the same way, and I don't want to try to modernize it necessarily. But one thing to pray is that, one, make sure that what we are believing truly is true, that God really is our Heavenly Father, that the gospel is not something that kind of sticks around and we just are rejecting. Uh, and we could also pray that for others, that um, because he says there's a, the, a plurality of the language that Christ is using here, right? Our Heavenly Father, give us our bread, lead us not into temptation. So while we can individualize these prayers, there's also a sense of public prayer here and group prayer. And so, you know, we don't know the the eternal destiny of someone who we believe is a Christian. We don't know the eternal destiny or the whether God has chosen someone who is currently not professing to be a Christian. And so what we want to pray is that collectively that the gospel will plant in fresh, good soil and grow to mature faith. And that the people that we give the gospel to or the people that we want the gospel to have, or even the people who are around us who seem to be walking in gospel living, that their faith is genuine and that uh, the God of this world has not essentially snatched that truth from them because they are so hard. But let's flip it. What if Christ did mean deliver us from evil? Well, this would play nicely into um, delivering us from trials and tribulation. 
So in other words, if we take these last two together, deliver us from trials, deliver us from persecution, or, or don't lead us into persecution, but deliver us from the evil people of the world. In other words, these two walk hand in hand of evil people, God's enemies, want to hate the things of God. They, especially where this was being said, right, in the Roman context, which was a very uh, polytheistic, anti-God world. You know, the Jews were tolerated, but eh, as we see in later centuries, Christianity didn't stick around too favor favorably with people. So what Christ could be calling us to pray for is really to allow us to live in the world as friends of God and enemies of the world, but to not have the our ability to to live the gospel life or to spread the gospel be stamped out. Because really, if we want God's will to be done, we want the freedom, the opportunity, the ability to, to spread the gospel, to live in a way that God calls us to, to not be forced to worship a false God or lose our lives, to not be forced to promote ungodly ideologies or else face some form of persecution. It is easier to live and spread the gospel when we're allowed to. Now, that doesn't mean that God is failing because, you know, persecution happens. And in fact, persecution has historically been very good for the church because it is, if you look 50, 60, 70 years ago, it was not only easy to call yourself a Christian, but it was actually advantageous to call yourself a Christian, right? You could actually be denied a job or you could be thought lesser of if you did not go to church. Does that mean that everyone was saved? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that just as there are few people saved in America today, there were few people saved in America back then. But it was a cultural thing. And as a result, Christianity got very weak and watered down. Whereas if you take a place like China today, if, if you're a Christian there, you're doing it despite how costly it is to call yourself a Christian. There is no advantage to calling yourself a Christian. So if you're going to read your Bible, if you're going to pray, if you're going to meet with other believers, you're going to do it knowing that it can cost you your life, but it is worth it. And this is even uh, kind of hit on by Christ just later on again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And of course, here he's talking about money. But in general, that's true, right? We want to be protected from evil. We want to be, you know, not facing persecution, but we also want to realize where our heavenly identity is, or where our where our personal identity is, which is in heaven as heavenly citizens. Um, you know, James 4.4 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, the Bible is just filled with this idea of devoted, loyal, separated gospel living. We are in the world. We are not of the world. We are in the world, but our minds are not conformed to the world. They are transformed by the renewing of our minds through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we want to really keep that in mind as we are thinking about how we are living in the world. You know, we've gone in Christ model prayer from us individually, how we relate to others, and then how we live in this world. And we want to have that heavenly mindset of we rely on God. We we want 
our experiences to be better because realistically i think everyone would agree it's better to have a nice time than a bad time it's better to to live for god in an easier world than in a hard world as long as we are living for god with equal strength under persecution or under flourishing and and uh, society's favor right we don't want to be lazy in our gospel living but overall though we want to realize that there is a difference in the world there is living for the world being a citizen of the world having our identity in the world thinking like god's enemies finding our happiness in having a spouse or a good relationship in having wealth in having popularity in in being thought of well and and whatever it is you know having kids and finding our identity in them that is as christ says for the gentiles that is earthly thinking that is being a friend of the world and when we do that we make ourselves enemies of god instead part of our prayer wants to be to for god to kind of deliver us to protect us to preserve us as we are living our lives in this world both individually with those around us or just as we are developing our biblical worldview we want it to be centered only in Jesus Christ. We want him to be our primary means that we think about life and the world. And so as we are praying, I don't think it's an either or, but I think it's a both and. Um, But it's either don't allow us to fall into the temptation of sin, but instead to deliver us from evil of the world or of our salvation not being true, or Don't lead us into trials and tribulations, but protect us, preserve us from the evils of the world, whether that is physical and bodily persecution, whether it is cultural and societal persecution, or deliver us from the evil of the world in the terms of don't let us be absorbed into the world. Don't let us be like the rest of the world that hates you, but instead protect us and preserve us so that we can have a desire to know who you are, to honor you, to reverence you, to see your will done on earth through us. Let us rely on you for our needs. Let us rely on you for our spiritual health. Let us live well with others and represent you to them so that we can, in general, just live in the world. So that is essentially the Lord's Prayer, Uh, trying to break it down, trying to pick up on these specific things that Christ is saying, focusing on the context of where he is saying it, and um, hopefully helping us better understand prayer. So I know that was kind of a lot. It was um, really just kind of boom, 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 point after point. So let me maybe try to summarize how this can then help us individually. How do we apply this to our lives? So as I said, you know, go back, listen to the episode, Focus on what you're believing about God, both as Father and as holy and set apart. Because when we pray, it's not just, oh, well, you know, God's sitting there saying, oh, they did the job, they did the deed, so I'll reward them. It's not about what we're doing, but why. What are we believing? What are we understanding about God? If we don't understand the God we're praying to, we're not really praying to God. We're praying to someone that in our mind is named God, but there's a good chance that if we don't truly understand who God is and as how he relates to his people, that we're praying to nothingness. We're praying to air. So we need to understand who God is 
as we pray to him and the more we understand about him, the more we're going to understand why we pray in the first place. Uh, We want to understand not only that God is majestic, God is all-powerful, but we also want to be praying in line with living as part of his kingdom. We want to have our minds set on God. What is your will on earth? We want to pray that it will be done. We want to pray that we will understand it. And we want to pray that God will use us as a part of it. God wants us to be active participants. He doesn't need us. He is not incapable of doing things. Yet, God in his perfection still chooses to use imperfect creatures to fulfill his perfect desires. And that's an overwhelming thought for us at a certain point, because who are we? How worthy can we possibly be? What value can we possibly add to God's will? Shouldn't we let someone else do that? No, we, we aren't worthy. We aren't capable. Yet, we can trust that this is how God has chosen to do things. He has chosen to use his people to spread the gospel. God doesn't just come and, and present the gospel to each individual. He calls on us to do it. He does that with the gospel, and he really does that with all of his will, it seems. You know, God will accomplish what he's going to accomplish, but we have the, not just obligation, but the privilege, the honor, the joy of serving God in that way. And so as we're praying, we want to pray that, yes, God, you know, fulfill this, save this person. But we also want to pray and understand, you know, God, do you want me to be your hand? Do you want to use me as an extension of your will in the earth? Do you want me to be your earthly representative as your plan is carried out? And we want to be willing to do that. Not just sit on the sidelines, but actively be engaged in God's kingdom work. We want to pray for our needs. We want to bring our petitions to God. We want to let him know what we need, what we desire. Again, praying in light of what God's will is. You know, not saying, God, I need this or else, but God, here's what I want. Here is what I think I need. But if you you want me to have it, allow me to have it in a way that I can glorify you through it. If you do not want me to have it, then deny it to me and let me still glorify you. Again, this is all about us focusing on God's will and filtering everything through what we are believing about God and what we believe about the things that we are praying about. And then not only are we relying on God for our our physical provisions and even our spiritual provisions, but we also want to honor God in how we are thinking about our sins and the sins of others. So confessing our sin to God, knowing that they are forgiven, but we acknowledge that sin to him. We repent of that sin. We we want to see that sin killed in our life and we rely on God for that. And then also praying that we can forgive others to represent God to others. So as you're praying for people in your life, you know, pray that, you know, Not just that someone will behave better towards you, but that you can be sinless in that person who sins against you, that you can be forgiving, that you can let others see Christ through you, even though in your flesh you want to be angry at them or get revenge or whatever it is. And then we rely on God for basic living in the world, you know, protection from those who hate God and who by extension, because they hate God, because they hate Christ, they hate us as well because we we represent him as we've been praying for, right? So praying to God to protect us from that, to protect us from the temptations to sin once again, um, to take the steps necessary even to 
to avoid that sin. Uh, you know, Christ says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your phone causes you to sin, get rid of it, fix it, do something that pr protects you from sinning in that way. Um, and really just praying that God will help us to live in the world well, that we will know with certainty that our salvation is genuine, that those that we are living with will have a genuine salvation, and that we can live in this world in a way that is focused or is filtered through a biblical worldview that understands who God is, who we are, what our purpose in life is, and how when we pray, that's what we are focused on. We are focused on who God is, and everything that flows from that. So Christ only took a few words to say what it has taken me uh, about an hour maybe to, to, to talk about. Um, this is not an easy subject. I know prayer, again, it is hard. Uh, I, I'm not going to deny that us talking to God and not hearing things is hard. Um, the, the difficulty of interpreting, you know, is this the Holy Spirit moving in my heart and confirming something? Is it my emotions? Is it the Taco Bell that I had earlier today? You know, it's, it's very hard to concretely pray and know what the response to that prayer is. We can feel like we know what it is. We can feel like God is moving and speaking directly to us, but really prayer is I think has been well described as prayer is our communication to God and the Bible and the Holy Spirit's illumination through the Bible is God's kind of response to us. So I'm not saying that prayer is going to be easier. I'm not saying that prayer is going to be more natural, but if you have listened well to this episode, if you have internalized and understood things well, then at the very least, you're going to understand what prayer is and who God is and what you should be believing about prayer so that God can grow you in it. So uh, go and read Matthew 6 verses 9 to 13. Uh, as always, the link to my original article will be down in the show notes. That will give you um, a much shorter and punchier version that actually looks at the model prayer in Luke, which doesn't talk about um your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, nor talk about the evil one or evil. But if you just want something a little more condensed or a good refresher, that will help. But um, let this episode matter to you, I guess, is my biggest desire. Um, you know, there's there are a handful of core aspects of the Christian life that God uses to grow us. And prayer, just like Bible reading, is hard. It can be uncomfortable. It can be difficult to get into. It is something that some of us may struggle with all the time because it's just a, a difficult thing. But if you understand who you're praying to and why we pray in the first place, not to try to change God's mind, but really to communicate our needs to God, but also to, to express our reliance on God and who he is, then... I truly believe your prayer life will be strengthened, it will be more meaningful, and even if you struggle to pray regularly, those times that you do pray will be done not in confusion, not in just ticking off some weird routine or weird ritual you don't understand, but instead it will help you know who you're praying for and will help you focus on the true Heavenly Father who sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sin, to 
set you free from sin to give you his righteousness and who gave you the Holy Spirit who today, right now, lives in you, grows you, even prays for you in ways because you don't understand what to pray. So remember that God loves you. God is holy. God is amazing. And God wants you to live a life in this world, in this very temporary life that is honoring and pleasing and serving to Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 